live from Salt Lake City. This is Heart of the Matter Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's begin with a prayer. Lord, we're just uh, talking about the things you do in our lives and how you just orchestrate stuff and uh, in ways we can't predict and we can't foresee. And we often have other plans and they're always inferior. And you bring forth the good stuff and we're just grateful. We recognize you, Lord, in our lives, and we thank you for being here and grateful for loving us so much that you take care of us and you send us your only begotten Son that we could live again by and through your grace through faith. Bless our staff and volunteers and the people at work and uh, people who are seeking for truth in the program tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a new spot to show you, and I just want to say before we show it to you, these things are, uh, like everybody's... uh, contributions to the ministry. Really grateful for Cassidy. Uh, For every minute of this type of spot that we're going to see, it takes about 10 hours of editing and creation. It's really uh, an expression. It's an artistic expression. Uh, Very well done. But I just want to compliment her for all that hard work and labor for every minute, about 10 hours. And talk to any editor, any creator in this industry, and they would tell you, yeah, it's true. It's tough. But anyway, I just wanted to thank her and take a look. We spent spent the first first seven years talking talking about Mormonism and trying trying to get people to come out of Mormonism. And I just embraced all that modern Christianity was without thinking too much about it. Once I stopped focusing on Mormonism and we began to look around to see what LDS people are going to, I was appalled. That threw me into seeking and trying to understand the Bible, and I realized there are as many divergent, opposing positions on main theological issues as there are agreements. It really blew my mind. So what happens is your same people leave Mormonism, leave Mormonism, they come out and then they go into a Pentecostal church, Presbyterian church, five-point Calvinist, or they go into a Jesus-only church, and it's endless. And so we started thinking, what is the root cause of that? And the root cause is taking the Bible, applying it to your life right now, and saying, it has to be this way rather than that. And And so so we wrote a book, and it's called Knife to a Gunfight. And the premise of that is we're misinterpreting the purpose and place of the New Testament. We've taken it, and we've said, we are going to use it as a manual on how everybody has to be, a new law. When in reality, it should be a spiritual map. It should be a book that teaches us about God through the history of the Jews and the Gentiles and the early church. And it shouldn't become a knife that we stab each other with. The Spirit is the gun. The Spirit is what slays us all. And so if you're a truth seeker and you really want to worship God in spirit and in truth, consider this book and the concepts in it.
So thanks again, Cassidy McCraney, for uh, that excellent uh, artwork and uh, uh, dedication to the ministry. Knife to a Gunfight is available, as she showed you there, but uh, if you can't afford uh, one, uh, write us and tell us, and we'll send you one. And that's just how it will always be, so uh, consider that. Uh, received an email from overseas from Daniel. Uh, it says, hey, Sean, I'm an ex-Mormon, currently agnostic, but something keeps me from joining Christianity that I cannot, I can't comprehend hell. It sounds like a very cruel, horrible idea. I mean, only because my mom was deceived by Mormonism, but nevertheless had a kind heart and did her best to follow God according to the knowledge she had. She is sent to an eternal lake of fire. I think Christians don't understand how painful and horrible this concept really is. Eternal. We are not talking about people being burned one year or one billion years, but forever. I don't understand how a merciful God could send a person with good intentions to eternal torment. The idea seems immoral to me. I even read a Christian post saying that when we die, we won't feel sorry for our family burning in hell because we will see them with sanctified eyes. So we will see them as the horrible sinners they are and we will worship God for being just enough for sending them to hell, for being just enough for sending them to hell. And that we won't see them as family anymore, but as people we once loved. He said, the idea of me starting to see a dear loved one as devils and not loving them anymore is horrible. And this Christian guy said this to someone that had lost their own non-Christian parents in an attempt to comfort him. This idea of hell is keeping me from Christianity because I think it contradicts an idea of a merciful, loving God. I just can't accept that horrible, immoral concept of hell. How do you deal with this, Sean? First of all, there is a big, gigantic difference between hell, uh, the covered place, the dark place after this life, and the lake of fire. We use them interchangeably, and it's, it's really important to understand the distinction. But my brother, I deal with it through the Bible. I mean, and which is the only way to effectively deal with any wild, uh, errant, in my opinion, Christian traditions. Uh, a careful study of the Bible, you know, if you consider the original languages and the contextual understanding of its contents, and you consider the application of uh, translations, the information in the Bible strongly points to the fact that afterlife punishment, afterlife punishment is real. Uh, afterlife loss is certainly real. Uh, but it is purposeful. And it is not simply punitive. And it also has uh, a, a limits to its duration. And this isn't unique to me. I'm not new to this. It's not that there is an afterlife punishment. It's not that the people haven't gone to hell or don't go to the lake of fire. But it's that it's, for a, it's a purging uh, purpose. And the, the love God has, the love of God, the God of love has a reason behind all this. Just like he has a reason for allowing believers of his here on earth to go through hell while we're alive. I mean, sometimes believers suffer from horrible things while we're here. He knows what he's doing when it comes to his ways. Add in the fact that all the early church uh, leaders, I call them early church leaders, not early church fathers, but all the early church leaders up to Augustine agreed with that notion that afterlife punishment was purposeful and was not just for uh, uh, the sake of punishment, and then add in a dozen, maybe two dozen, 
biblical examples where it talks about how uh, punishment will give up after the, the purpose has been done. And if you put all that together, uh, it brings you some answers. Now listen, if you go to hotm.tv and look through the archives, no- November 11th, 2014 through December of 2014, that window, we call uh, those shows uh, Eternal Punishment, question mark. You can watch those and it will give you all the things I just talked about, but in a much more exhaustive way. We also thank Brother uh, Tom P. for his recent email about age-abiding life and total reconciliation. I'm not going to cover it here, but it's really good stuff, my brother. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the the noise of thunder, thunder. one One of the the four beasts saying, Come and see. And And I saw. And behold, a white horse. Let's just call this short segment tonight, uh, a, The Misunderstood Jesus. In Matthew 27, Jesus, our promised Messiah, the promised Messiah, our King of King and Lord of Lords, is paradoxically crucified. At verse 38, we read, Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Now, doesn't that say volumes about our King that God allowed him to suffer and die between two thieves uh, outside the city gates at the place where rubbish was tossed. You can bring it up, Mayor. And this should tell us something about him. Uh, it should tell us something about God. It should tell, him so- tell us something about ourselves, that he would allow our king to die that way. That has to tell us something. And then it says in verse 39, And they passed by and reviled him, wagging their heads. So that says volumes about how the world sees things and how uh, we will uh, will judge things so wrongly with our eyes and, and our appearances. I mean, they were wagging their head at the Son of God. They're wagging their head at him. And what did they say with their heads all a wagon? They said at verse 40, Thou that destroys the temple and builds it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Okay? Look at the presupposition heaped upon him at that moment of his suffering. He's willing to suffer out of love for the entire world. And those who have put him there are taunting him and telling him to save himself to prove that he's the son of God, to really prove, he, they say, come down from that cross and prove to us you're the son of God. How ironic for it was the fact that he was the son of God, that he remained on the cross. You see how misunderstood the whole thing was and how he had to just endure the stupidity that was going on around him? Very misunderstood, but he bore it, didn't he? Verse 41, likewise also, so they first said that, The chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. So again, the misunderstanding of our Messiah, he saved others, but they said he can't save himself. And again, we're missing the fact that if he had saved himself, he wouldn't have saved others. And there's irony in every single thing that 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 poor Messiah was about and God allowed it. And uh, it was his selfless love that kept him there, nailed to the cross. And then they said, well, if you're the king of Israel, 
They give another if. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. You know, you're up there. We've shown you what we can do to you. You're nailed to the cross. Come on down and then we'll believe you're really the, the king of Israel. They sought and wanted a material king. Uh, they, they wanted the Messiah uh, that they would receive to be, overcome everything materially, the, any kind of everything, Romans, soldiers, the economy, his, his pain. Come down off that rack, prove yourself to be this kind of king, and we will then believe you. But this misunderstood Messiah was never supposed to be that, was he? And he was supposed to suffer between those derelicts, and he was to bleed from his broken and beat body and willingly remained there, even though they wagged their heads and taunted him with their words and hung there between heaven and earth, very symbolic, hanging between the two, uh, saving us all. For him to climb down from his suffering might have given him the praise of men for a very short period of time, but it would have been a short-lived celebration. And in the long haul, he was in it. He was in it for the eternal haul. He closed his ears, he closed his eyes, and he died. What a misunderstood Messiah his lot was to bear. Then the final criticism, he trusted God, let God deliver him now. If God will have him, they add that, for he said, I am the son of God. The final insult, the mockery, this man called himself the son of God. God's son, you know, ha, let's see if God even wants him, you know. Scripture tells us we don't war against flesh and blood. What or who was it that was speaking these words around the cross that day? Was it flesh and blood? Uh, Jesus, remember, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. It's interesting that prior to entering into his ministry, uh, Jesus went, it was taken and he went into the wilderness and Satan said, if you're the son of God. Now, this is the same language. It's the same language when he was on the cross that he got when he was first uh, tried in the wilderness. If you're the son of God, feed yourself. Turn these stones in the bread. And then if you're the son of God, prove yourself. Cast yourself down and let the angels catch you up. And if you're the son of God, reward yourself. Meaning bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this earth. And here upon the cross, the mouthpiece for the prince of darkness are these people not even knowing it. And they're, they're, they're wagging their head and they're saying, if, 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 same thing all over again. If you're the son of God, Feed yourself. Come down from that cross. Feed your own person, right? If you're the uh, son of God, if you're the king of Israel, you know, prove it to us. Come down from that cross and we will believe you. And then let's finally, let's see if God, even if your father even cares to have you. And they stood back arms folded. And what did God do? He let him die. And, and for three days, he was the most misunderstood Messiah on earth. His apostles presumably thought, it's all over. It's done. I mean, God allowed that whole scenario to play out. There's things in that for us to know as Christians, to believe as we walk in this life. Satan and the ways of the world are all about now. If, 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 you know, show yourself, prove yourself, do this, do that. About power and lust and pride and boasting and saving one's own life. But the life and death of the misunder. Under, misunderstood Messiah, we find the exact opposite. Such great lessons. And with that, let's get to part nine with Dr. Noam Chomsky about hacking at the root. Hold on one second. 
so far, the principles that we have uh, been learning about uh, for the few to govern the masses have been, one, reduce democracy, two, shape ideology, three, redesign the economy, and then last week, shift the burden. And we've talked about how those rules of thumb that Chomsky talks about apply to brick-and-mortar religion today. Tonight, we're going to talk about the fifth one, and it's a little bit different, but try to think about it as we go along, and it's attack solidarity. This is the fifth one, attacking solidarity. Now, in light of the fact that the first principle is reduce democracy, it's no wonder that the power players uh, in government and big corporations uh, and even churches would not appreciate true solidarity among the masses. Now, think about what I just said, that among the churches, the pastors would not appreciate true solidarity among the masses. Now, that's kind of hard to accept at first when I just presented that to you. And when we talk about church, I mean, we tend to think of pastors and priests and reverends and bishops as peace seekers and promoters of solidarity, right? I don't think so. I'm not so sure about that. In the film Requiem for the American Dream, Chomsky speaks of this principle in the secular world, and he says that solidarity, quote, is a fearful thing to the masters of mankind, the few who want to puppeteer the masses, because it keeps the masses in power, solidarity, and in more control of themselves, so therefore they are less willing to be puppeteered by the few. So again, measures are taken to keep solidarity at a minimum in most large group organizations. Now, if you really think about it, solidarity, true agape solidarity, thrives in love. When there is love present, true like heavenly love, if we could take the love that's in heaven, the presence of God who is love, and bring it down among a group, you are going to have a picture of genuine solidarity, right? When love is present. Uh, unfettered, undemanded, undirected, self-sacrificial consideration for other people love. When that is present, there is solidarity, true solidarity. And such an environment would be very, very low on criticism of each other. And it would be really high in the things Paul talks about love being in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In other words, solidarity would thrive when there's long-suffering, when there's patience, when there's kindness, when there is no boasting, when there's humility, all those characteristics of true love in 1 Corinthians 13, when that's present in a group, that is the most binding, that's the koinonia, that fellowship, that binding love that would exist among a group. So take three people, take 300, take 3,000, take 3 million. If true agape love is present in all of those of that group, you are going to have solidarity. That doesn't even require leadership. It doesn't require anybody doing anything. That's why there would be no law. Because laws aren't needed where love is present. You understand so far? So let me repeat this. If we really think about it, solidarity thrives when unfettered and unregulated self-sacrifice and consideration of others is in place. When true agape love is abiding. Remember that, okay? So I'm going to uh, skip 
uh, Chomsky's, covering Chomsky's examples in this area of attacking, because his examples don't help us understand the application to the church. They don't carry over perfectly. They just muddy the waters. So they're not, it's not that they're not good examples, but they're not worth it now. Our goal is to try to examine the subtle measures that are in place among the brick and mortars today and, and in yesteryear that keep solidarity of the masses to a minimum, to a minimum, right? So, uh, as we mentioned, the application to Christianity is highly nuanced with this because most religious leaders do, in fact, seek to have their congregations unified and, and full of solidarity. Uh, but remember that subtle caveat. They want their congregations to be unified. They want their congregations. They don't like infighting because infighting causes problems and it causes splits and divisions. So they want their congregations united. But in other words, can we say that a pastor or a preacher or reverend really seeks solidarity if they want solidarity with their own, but they attack others in the body of Christ? That doesn't sound like that is a group seeking solidarity. That sounds like someone who's selfishly seeking to control their small group through solidarity. So I'm not talking about speaking over the pulpit against world sin and evil and uh, uh, against the ways of the world. Pastors were supposed to do that. This is not about tolerant speech. We're talking about real unity in the body of believers, of people who profess Christ as Lord and Savior. In my estimation, it's anti-solidarity and proof of it is when one church seeks to harm another one that profess Christ as Lord and Savior. That, that, that they actually speak against the other denom, the other group, the other people. Uh, that is anti-solidarity because we're all, in, in fact, if we're preaching and teaching Christ, what is the point in doing that? So while most brick and mortars appear to desire solidarity among all, with their believers, what they actually want is their own congregates to stand together against the outside. It's an us versus them situation in many, not all, but in many. Our way is the right way. We have the right thing. We should be united. As, oh, that group doesn't agree with us. Stay away from them. Don't read that. Don't do that. You know, our way is this. Our way is that. Now, not all of them do it, certainly. But some of the more egregious ones certainly do. It's an active campaign to create an us versus them so that the masters of mankind, they actually strive to keep true solidarity to a minimum. Chomsky says, solidarity of the masses is very dangerous because from the point of view of the masters, you are only supposed to care about yourself and not other people. He says, speaking of the economy, this is very different from their claimed heroes, he says, like Adam Smith, who based on the whole approach to the economy was an idea that sympathy is a fundamental human trait. And listen to what he adds. Therefore, sympathy has to be driven out of people's heads. Okay, just kind of take that concept, right or wrong, when Chomsky's talking about it, and ask yourself, do, does Sean McCraney, does my pastor, does my bishop, 
are they driving sympathy and love out of me? Or are they trying to get me to be more? Just ask yourself that question when you do the litmus test of your pastor. Am I becoming more loving as Christ commanded us to be? Or are there things that are coming out to me that are causing me to be less sympathetic, less patient, less kind, less gentle, less long-suffering, more boastful? Just do that and you can start to see what direction you're being moved. I mean, it's really, really quite simple. Now slow down, ask yourself, how is sympathy driven out of the head of believers who have received Christ as their master? I mean, when you think about it, Christians should be the most, absolute most, gentle, sympathetic, uh, empathetic, kind, gentle, long-suffering people on earth. If that's our king, that is how we should be known. But if that has been driven out of us by some means, then we have to address that so that we can see it and try to turn it around. I would suggest to you there are three main, or I'm sure there's more, that I can see methods to shatter solidarity in, among the masses in the faith. First, they create an us versus them environment in the hearts of the congregates toward outsiders. So this is, this is taking the body of Christ and every single hand and foot and eye and ear is trying to make, create an us versus them mentality. Now they don't all do it, again, but that's the first one. It's to take your congregation and separate your, yourself from the rest of all, all the others who claim Christ. Secondly, they suddenly nurture that us versus them mentality uh, through the implementation of law. Now this is in-house. You take a congregation in-house and they subtly bring in laws that that will solidify the law keepers in the group and it will get rid of everybody who doesn't. So it really is destructive to solidarity, not purposeful to true solidarity. And then finally, they overtly drive love and sympathy out of the hearts of people through a false approach to doctrine. So let me quickly cover those three things, all right? First, they create an us versus them environment in the hearts of their congregates toward outsiders. Uh, We'll call this the macro level of attacking solidarity. This is the big picture of how we're just out to. And when a denomination or leader of a church can convince its flock that they are the us, we are the us, and the rest of the world is the them, they have created a fantastic uh, insular approach that is anti-solidarity with other believers. And that's really problematic. King of that, the people's cult, Jim Jones. We're going to the far extremes. I mean, that guy was the king of making it. It's us and it's them. And they are out to get us. Uh, Most of the totalistic methodology groups, the cults do that. Mormonism does it to a great extent. We have the truth. We are the light bearers to the world. They don't understand. uh, Expect to be persecuted by them but we will uh, pr- prevail. It's a, it's a constant thing to break down solidarity. I can tell you right now, they may, they may preach it, 
but the Mormon church does not want solidarity among the masses. They don't want their group really unified with the other Christians. They, they might say it publicly, but they do not want that. They want it broken up, and that comes down through their laws in other ways. Uh, so uh, the Westboro Baptists are another great example of a group that says it's us and then all the rest of the Christians, the ones who, lo- who support war and police officers and this or that, they are, and that's how they've gotten along. So uh, in the corporate world that Chomsky talks about, these attitudes are probably natural for capitalistic competition. In other words, um, for every Chevron, everybody who's a Chevron lover is going to hate Shell. And everybody who drives a Ford is going to hate Chevy. And we have these natural competitions that are a result of free market capitalization and uh, branding, brand loyalty. We have our own favorite teams. All of this is kind of expected in this fallen world. But when it comes to the church of Christ, the body of Christ. We are not in free market capitalization, but many people think they are, and so they develop this us versus them uh, system so as to capitalize on uh, that segregation and that attacking of solidarity. So we can expect it in the world, but we shouldn't be applying it. We are not in competition. Campus here is not in competition with Calvary Chapel across the way. We have people come over from Calvary Chapel, and I get it frequently. They try to bait me. Yeah, you know, over at Calvary. That's good. Yeah, Calvary Chapel, we do. They're saying this. Really? That's good. Because we have to have the solidarity. I would think that the people who come to campus should be as welcome to go to, to, uh, to Calvary or to any other that they want to and receive the same reception. And if they come here, the same thing. Because somebody, if a Westboro Baptist came in here and said, I'm a Westboro Baptist, say, sit down. And I would think, I would hope that the Westboro Baptist would allow someone here to go visit them, but they won't, you see. But that's the point. If Jesus is the brand, and that's the brand identity of the faith, then wherever Jesus is should be this solidarity. But the the puppeteers don't want that. They don't because it infringes upon their free market capitalization of all the masses. They need more, especially here in Utah, when, you know, the the, the body is relatively small. So the breaking up of solidarity against the world of Christians, that's only the first one. Let's look at the second one. Most brick and mortars suddenly nurture an us versus them mentality in their own congregations through the implementation of laws. What this is, is they don't want everybody in their congregation to be really united. That's a fearful thing. So what they do is they only want those who are willing to follow the laws established to be united. And so they establish laws and everybody in that singular congregation either conforms or casts out, as Rush would say. So the macro level master manipulators essentially divide through denominational uniqueness But at the micro level, that's what we're talking about now, they divide and conquer their own flock and as a means to control them. And they do this through the implementation of laws. And these laws are presented in practices, expectations, and cultural demands. And so remember now, we're talking about a faith that began with one man, God with us, Jesus Christ. Preach, love your enemies, forgive those... Seven times 70, 
long, long suffering, patience, kindness, sit with sinners, sit and eat with sinners. This is what he preached. And I maintain that this good news was designed to meet all people's needs and is not designed to force people into certain cultural adaptations in order to be welcomed into a group. In other words, this isn't about providing laws in a group that must be maintained or else you get cast out. So, in other words, there ought to be no respecting of persons. James says that in James 2. Of anybody, any time. There ought to be no animus for those who don't walk with us. Uh, That's in Mark chapter 9. Remember that? They're walking and, and James and John said, shall we cast this guy out. He's casting out devils in your name. He doesn't walk with us. Jesus says, leave him alone. He's not against us. He's for us. There should be none of these expectations that you have to walk with the group. And there ought to be love and acceptance for people in sin. And as Jesus said, the hospital is not for the whole, but for the sick. But yet today, you know, we, we will keep solidarity alive with the people who keep the rules by attacking people in the congregations who have sin have a problem with sin, have a problem with drink or have a problem with sex or porn or, or all the sins that we commit. If they publicly come out and say, yeah, I'm having a problem with, uh, you know, whatever, uh, uh, many will automatically, they'll say, no, 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 no. And they will attack the solidarity that should be there in the hospital for the sick. In essence, the faith ought to overflow with agape love and not law, which is the antithesis to love. So as a means to intact internal solidarity of the flock, most brick and mortars throw down these laws and uh, it removes the rebels and it uh, casts out the disaffected and it alienates the people who have a difficult time in associating in large groups and uh, it only allows the sanitized and the truly worthy and committed to remain. Put it this way, when there are laws, cultural, practical, no matter how trite, there will be offenses. When there are laws, there will be offenses. And when there are offenses, there will be lawyers. There will be prosecutors and there will be defenders. And when those guys show up, and I'm talking about this not literally, figuratively, comes fighting, comes judgment, comes the shattering of solidarity constantly as a means to weed out those who do not keep up. The pretext to this, which we talked about last week, says, well, Sean, you have to have rules and laws to govern the religious institutions that we create. And of course we do. You have to. I get that. It makes great sense. But the problem is the spirit is the governor. And we have created institutions where laws have to be in place because we have not allowed the spirit to be in place. So we create these things and we call them God's will because he's blessed them so much with abundance but yet we can't maintain them without imposing laws upon people which breaks people up and throws them to the sideline. Uh, Paul made it clear, the letter kills. The letter kills. If I put one letter up here, D, I put a D up here, that letter will kill somebody in in the congregation some point in time. Might take 10 years, but that letter is gonna do something to somebody in that congregation. I don't know what. If you make it a little bit more like do not chew gum, you will lose somebody in that place who loves Jesus, 
who wants to love the Lord, but also likes chewing gum. You see how the letter kills? Paul was really clear about it. But we don't listen to that. We just keep building up these things so that we can have our way and manipulate the masses. Now listen, to live by the Spirit and to live without law is really tough. Uh, we try it and we fail and you try, but you know, that's probably what it's about is learning that there's going to be people who take advantage of you. There are people who will come in and they need laws. The first thing you want to do is strap them down with a boatload of laws just to shut them up and keep them in the corner. I get it, but that's not what the church is for. It might be what a corporation's for, but it's not what the church is for. I guarantee you, if the faith is being practiced without all the fanfare of playing church, the need for internal laws will commensurately decline. When Jesus walked the earth, the only thing that made him truly angry, it seemed like, I can't think of any other uh, response where he was really truly angry, was religiosity run, run amok. When, when they took the faith and they turned it into something that was a law and that was, that was uh, predatory. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, 1 through 5, it says, Jesus entered into the synagogue. There's a man with a withered hand. And they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day, that they might accuse him. See, that was a law. And he said unto them, a man which of the withered head, stand forth. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they held their peace. Now listen to this next passage. And when he looked round on them with anger, he was really angry about this because he comes in the, in the synagogue and they have the rule and they want to see, are you going to actually heal somebody on the Sabbath day? That was, up on, that was up on the wall. That was written in letters. Do not do any of this on the Sabbath day. And he looked on them with anger. This is the Lord. And then he goes and he heals them. He says, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. The letter kills. And that's how it works. It's so interesting. We don't see Jesus condemning other people in his day for the things that Christians condemn other people for today. Have you ever noticed that? We are huge on condemning. Uh, I mean, there's a spectrum. Some people will condemn divorcees. You know, Jesus talked about it. He, that's the close he came to, to expressing it, but he talked about it. But he, I didn't see any condemnation. Woman at the well, uh, abortion, gays, trannies, adulterers, pedophiles. I, we don't see him condemning any of them, and yet Christians today spend our time condemning all of that, making sure that we keep that out of the hospital. You know, we only want people with colds, not people with cancer. The brick and mortars today outspokenly make sure to put an end to Christian solidarity by openly standing against people who have these issues. So finally, the overt drive, the, uh, the they overtly drive love and sympathy out of the hearts of people through a false approach to doctrine. And this is the final way. It's not just the laws. What they do, this is when Chomsky says they have to drive sympathy out, is they drive that sympathy out. Now, I want you to really stop. We're going to wrap it up tonight. We've got an off-air question, but think. How this works on people. Just try to go with me and think. How does this actually happen when someone comes to know that God so loved them, he sent his son, his son gave his life for them, 
They are forgiven of sin, past, present, and future, saved by grace through faith, and they have new life. That is the beautiful picture of this baby, right? This baby Christian, so full of this new life. How, we're all put in the same basket at that point. Now, suddenly people start to change. And they have that, that moment of beauty. And we see people who go from that point to actually loving the fact that people on this earth are going to burn forever in hell. How do we get people who are supposed to be completely charitable and loving and kind and long-suffering to being happy and smiling with a gleam in their eye when they tell somebody, you're going to hell? Where does that, how does that occur? It comes by the misappropriation of doctrine. And it comes by those babes in Christ being fed doctrine errantly, which causes them in their nascent faith of purity to become vile and to hope that the people who don't receive Jesus in this life will burn forever in hell. Or the do forget hell. What about the doctrine? Just about salvation. What about people who are taught you were specifically chosen to be a babe in Christ and to have this gift because God chose you and he doesn't choose 90% of the other people. They will burn in hell forever. You he chose only. You. You, you, you. <laughs> and so you have this go on and you go and pretty soon you're looking at the world through those lenses, through that twisted doctrine, and you stop being what Christ told us to be. This is how solidarity is broken down through the manipulation of doctrine. Because you are, you are created us versus them with everybody you meet. Somebody who doesn't agree with you, you're going to hell. Somebody who doesn't agree with you, God didn't choose you. Somebody who doesn't live like you do, oh, you just wait. I mean, and it happens because they have pushed the sympathy out of you. You have to work to keep that love alive. You have to work to forgive and look past the faults of others. And it's so easy to have that sympathy pushed out of you through inappropriate doctrinal teachings. And it happens all the time. We see it all the time. So we're going to continue next week with the sixth application. God is love. Believers look to him through faith in his son. We have zero business cultivating evil thoughts. We have zero business cultivating within the body hatred, uh, alienation, judgment, condemnation. Will God judge and, and do the, condemn and cause? Of course he will. That's a biblical tenet. Can't get around that. Are there sins that we say this is a sin? Of course there are. We do that. We say that in love. But we point the fingers back at ourselves as we point the fingers out to the crowd and we enter the world with the love Jesus had for it and not with having our sympathies pushed out of us so we can live in an us versus them environment. Let's open up the phone lines, 801 590-8413, We'll come back to Matt from New York on line one, Anthony from Mesa on line two after this. 
We spent, we spent the first seven years talking about Mormonism and trying to get people to come out of Mormonism, and I just embraced all that modern Christianity was without thinking too much about it. Once I stopped focusing on Mormonism and we began to look around to see what LDS people are going to, I was appalled. That threw me into seeking and trying to understand the Bible, and I realized there are as many divergent, opposing positions on main theological issues as there are agreements. It really blew my mind. So what happens is your same people leave Mormonism, leave Mormonism, they come out and then they go into a Pentecostal church, Presbyterian church, five-point Calvinist, or they go into a Jesus-only church, and it's endless. And, and so, so we started, started thinking, what is the root cause of that? And the root cause is taking the Bible, applying it to your life right now, and saying, it has to be this way rather than that. And so we wrote a book, and it's called Knife to a Gunfight. And the premise of that is we're misinterpreting the purpose and place of the New Testament. We've taken it and we've said, we are going to use it as a manual on how everybody has to be, a new law. When in reality, it should be a spiritual map, it should be a book that teaches us about God through the history of the Jews and the Gentiles and the early church, and it shouldn't become a knife that we stab each other with. The Spirit is the gun. The Spirit is what slays us all. And so if you're a truth seeker and you really want to worship God in spirit and in truth, consider this book and the concepts in it. baptism. My nephew wants to get baptized and he's asking for a minimum of $500. Uh, uh, listen, I don't think, this is the way I think, I think that when you belong to a church, the church, or you attend a church, the church should just do whatever the, the person needs. If it's a funeral, you do the funeral. If a per, it's a, uh, a, a wedding, you do the wedding. If it's baptisms, you do the baptism. And money is never tied to any of it. It shouldn't be, ever. You know, people, they don't have money or if they do, they can give. It just works like that. And you can survive that way as somebody in the faith. So this tying it to money, it's repulsive in my opinion. We're going to go to uh, Anthony from Mason. Then we're going to go to Matt in New York. Anthony, you're on Harlem Mater. Harlem Mater. Harlem Mater. Yeah, the, my computer lagged, so I was like, I had no idea where I was at, and I was trying to uh, take notes from today's show, and I can't read my own writing, so I will paraphrase as I can. Go for it. All right. So, you know, of course, I've been listening to you uh, hacking at the branches for since you've been doing it, <laughs> and uh, ultimately since, like, when I first uh, tried to yap at you, uh, 
it's like because I did bring up uh, agape love in contrast to uh, filio, you know, love, you know, Greek, I, I, you know, Greek um, perspectives of the idea of love, and it seems like I don't know. I'm just really, I'm trying, you know, to follow your uh, current page, and that's why I decided to call in today to really, I don't know maybe point out some of my perspectives and maybe you can enlighten me on these kind of ideas. Go for it. Because what you're doing now is really like a, you're putting ideas out there, you know, and you do have a, like today you have some biblical references. And I guess one thing, because I tried to talk to my father earlier, like I haven't talked to him in 20 years. And he's like, I don't respect anybody, Bobby Bloop, because of a, like his past and, you know, his military and private security and all this, and you got to earn my respect, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, I was like the, uh, re, you know, the no respect of persons. I do remember that uh, biblically, but I don't know the, I don't, I didn't know where it was uh, connotationally, if that's even a word, but that's like, I was trying to isolate that. But, when you're, you know, because you've been on this Chomsky um, allegory, I guess, or mm-hmm. dissertation mm-hmm. for a little while, and you know, it's if I mean that worked for you for you to express yourself in the show, mm-hmm. and I really appreciate that. Awesome, but man. like, because um, I was trying to take notes, and I can't. <laughs> it's been a little while since I tried to draw notes from school, and I'm like, I can't read my own handwriting. Hey, well, that's kind of rough. Anthony, we can, I can send you a copy of these notes with, with a few clicks <laughs> of my... If you stay on the line and leave your email address, I'll send you the notes uh, of all the Chomsky stuff. Cool. Okay. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, that'd be good. All right. All right. Well... So, I guess... Uh, you mind if I just try to get to a little point here so you maybe uh, there's a reflection of something that go maybe for other it. people... Go for that here. point. All right. So, like, when you're talking about Jesus being a uh, brand, I mean, of course, I understood what you're saying, um, your perspective, and I understand all that. But the only problem is, I guess, it's still, it's still my only, my only rough cut is, like, spirit. You know, it's, it's, uh, so, so we all believe in Jesus, and he is our Savior, but everybody still has this differential because you know like i first kind of talked to you was uh you know i became mormon and all this kind of stuff but spirit is still something i'm hung up on and everybody still really reflects differently in a uh, spirit quote-unquote kind of context they do and if we're and if we're all referencing spirit and love it's like we still have to have not law, but we still have to have some sort of a connotation, I guess, towards a, a cohesive unit. Well, give me an example. No. Uh, did you say give me an example? Yeah, give me an example of your point. Okay, so if if I okay, so I mean like little military BS kind of background. So if we're all spirit and we're all like, hey, we're going to do this, and then we all believe that. We're going to back each other up. That's the ideology. But then we got, like, spirit is like, I don't care what we're doing. And then our background is like, I'm just trying to make an honest buck. So, like, that's the background that I really came around with. 
military-wise. And so it's like they're just trying to do their thing, do their MOS, and get it done and over with, and maybe save their homeboy next to them and, you know, survive the next day, go back home, and do their thing. And so it's like that spirit. It's like that. I'm trying to say it's like it's that if, you know, say being in the Ecclesia, I mean, you know, church, is that the... uh even if it's just like 12 people or if it's because uh, I've been in large, you know, I call them like airport kind of churches because they're so ginormous. Yeah. I mean, from like, like 50 people to say like 250 people. Right. I mean, there should still be a, a cohesive spirit. Like I like that team. I like, uh, like we are a unit. We represent the spirit and we, re- we represent the agape love. And this is what we're about. This is like our everyday main objective. Yeah, we're going to work. We do our thing. It don't matter if I'm I'm a butcher and I'm cutting up pigs, or if I'm, you know, I'm a bank bank teller and, 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 and I'm Anthony you cash. I'm, you know, I, it's I, like, I, I understand kind of what you're saying, but I need to know the point. What what exactly? Um, you keep saying the spirit. And you you give me examples, but it I, I don't understand the point. Okay, so the point is that there should be a cohesive unity be on there the is. perspective of spirit. And that, that, that cohesiveness is the fruit of the spirit, which is love, joy, Amen. peace, long-suffering. And so when things don't go the way we want, uh, dedicated to a cause, we have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. We have the fruit of the spirit. That is the cohesiveness. That's what oils the machine. So it's not really that we are united and doing everything exactly the same and always agreeing. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. Th- that, yeah. W- that would be the way I would that's, say it. I, I concur. And that's the kind of the, uh, di- the dividend is that we all are individual human beings. We exist as we are and we have our own life experience. Yes. And it takes the individual to persevere and overcome their... They're like you were saying, like us versus them idea. Yes, it does. Me, like, like I was like, oh, look, us, you know, the Mormon idea. It's like we are this and you are that, et cetera, ad libitum. Yeah. So it's like it takes that individual courage and effort to go, okay, well, I am this and you are that. You've experienced this. I haven't experienced that but I still accept you as a brother or sister. It is. You know, it, it is. It's the yeah. individual. That's, that's why it's a subjective faith. And the objectivity yeah. has been a complete fail. Anthony, I've got a guy in New York waiting. Yeah. We're down to three. I hear you. Okay. Hey, brother, good to talk to you. Hey, you too. I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Sorry, Matt, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how are you doing? Espresso has just turned into a big, fat pot of coffee. All right. Hey, I'll be, I'll be quick then, all right? So, uh, it's it's not your long. fault, Matt. I just, want, just want to say, first of all, thank you very much for your ministry. Um, thanks to you, people like you and Sandra Tanner. Uh, I've, I've come to the true Jesus Christ. I've been saved by faith. Uh, praise God. Completely everything. It's all thanks to God, and I, and I appreciate for your ministry, and I'll be eternally grateful to, to God and people like you for helping me find Jesus Christ. Oh, thanks, brother. And that is such great news. Glad to hear it. So, uh, quickly, I just wanted to, it's kind of an overarching thing of what you've been talking about. Um, um, I've been shopping around, you know, trying to find a church. It's easy to find an LDS church. You just look at a map, right? Yeah. But uh, trying to find a church when you leave the LDS church is a little bit difficult. 
So uh, I've been studying theology. I really, uh, I really want to want to find a church that that I can relate to on a theological level. But like you said, falling into legalism, that you know, strictly theology and and not feeling spirit and not feeling welcome or not feeling like that's where God wants you. That's not good either. Yeah. So you've been kind of talking about it with Anthony and throughout the program. But how would you balance finding a church where you feel that it aligns with your how you read the Bible, how you understand the Bible? and uh, kind of where God wants you to be, how you can be fulfilled and be a part of this community. Just uh, looking for your insights on that. No, it's such a good question, Matt, because it is on the tip of uh, the tongue of most people who come out of Mormonism. So the application of this is really important. You know, it's a, it's a trial and error. I would just suggest, one, you, you, uh, you do a lot of dating before you get married. So uh, go to a lot of places and give them, give them, give them a good shot. It's really easy to be critical. I get, because this show is about criticizing really religion. And so it's really easy to be critical and everything is not gonna go your way. Uh, but so use the spirit and the fruit of the spirit as you go and give your pastor and uh, your, the benefit of the doubt and hear them out and uh, talk to them. If they're not available to you, I would walk from that place. If, if, they're, if they're putting you under laws, I would walk from that place. But if you find somebody that's not perfect, but they're, they, they love and they're, and they're willing to communicate with you, they'll hear a, a, a view that's different than yours. They aren't telling you to pay them money every freaking week. And you can just kind of go and they'll disciple with you and love you in the word on that day that you're there. Uh, you know, give them the benefit of that and stay with them. That's the best I can I can say because you might find a church really, really wonderful that I personally couldn't stand and vice versa. So give that a go. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Sean. Hey, thanks for calling, Matt. God bless you. God bless you. Take care. All right, bye-bye. And we will see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. Oh, wait. Delaney, don't pull the button. Uh, whatever that means. We, had a, uh, we were contacted by a org news organization called Breitbart News. I didn't know who Breitbart News was when he first contacted My daughters all did. All did. And uh, we did an interview with Breitbart for a couple hours uh, last week. And it uh, went really well. And they're going to reach out and talk to some of our detractors. And uh, then they're going to write up this, this uh, story about the history of Heart of the Matter and, uh, and Aletheia Ministries and campus. And uh, I'll, I'll let you know uh, when that comes out. We're very excited about it because uh, while the editor who I uh, interviewed with doesn't necessarily agree with uh, everything that I talk about for sure, uh, he was open to wanting to talk about us and not just malign what we're doing, but to really talk about what the ministry is about, why we've done what we've done, where we've been, et cetera, et cetera. So keep your ears uh, open. I don't know what you think about Breitbart News, but uh, I'll tell you this. My hat's off to them for their willingness to even, I mean, I don't think we would ever get an interview from Christianity Today. And uh, so I know these, these guys are controversial from what I've heard and everything, but my hat's off to, off to Breitbart News for at least giving us a chance to be heard. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on the ride, going nowhere 
I can feel 